Welcome everyone to the uh, Cup of Coffee podcast with me, Tom Dillon. This is being recorded live at our weekly online meeting and broadcast around the world. Um, today's topic, I haven't got handily written down, but um, we've uh, handily got uh, Matthew Brian Harris um, here to speak to us, uh, kindly joining us from uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, especially at the weekend, so we very much appreciate that. Uh, and the topic of today's talk, which... Um, uh, uh, which I think is very exciting, is uh, stocks and shares and making money. Um, uh, but we'll uh, we'll see what uh, Matthew got to share with us. Uh, and then, as usual, um, if it all goes to plan, Matthew will speak for a while and then we'll uh, dive into some questions at the end. So feel free to jump on the chat while he's speaking and we'll we'll get into those. And then I'll, uh, I or you or whoever will, will ask those questions at the end. So put your thinking caps on. Um, uh, before we start, I'd just like to stay by way of a, a disclaimer that today is a wonderful discussion, but nothing said here constitutes financial advice. And you should always take professional advice before investing your hard-earned cash. There may be the odd unplanned swear word along the way as well. Um, okay, uh, so um, uh, uh, let's get cracking. Um, uh, Matthew, how are you this morning? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me as well. Uh, one thing I'm just going to start with, if I start shouting, I'm deaf for some reason this morning in this ear. So uh, I'll, it might suddenly just clear as we go through. Um, uh, I suppose starting off, really, let me just sort of, uh, the fact that you started off with saying it's not constituting advice is brilliant. Uh, it's generic sort of discussion this morning. Um, let me just start off with HL to begin with. I mean, the company's huge now. It's been going 35 plus years. There's in excess of about 100 billion under management now. We've got, I think now there's well in excess of a million, it's about 1.27 million clients which are active on the platform. Um, HL was always set up as a, a platform for people to hold effectively their wealth. So it could be a mix of ISIS, pensions, savings, investments. Um, and the company has always tried to be, I suppose, a fun supermarket that allows investors to save and invest with confidence. Um, we've always sort of tried to be an advocate of trying to help people to help themselves. So it's very much for the DIY investor, they can go on the website, you've got a platform where you can hold your different investments, and there's masses of uh, research which is on the website, relatively easy to navigate through, and people can either buy individual shares to funds to all sorts of products on there. Um, where I come in really, I suppose, is many people, we, over the last probably sort of three, four months, we've seen masses and masses of uh, wannabe stock pickers. Uh, all of a sudden, lots of people have become experts and it's, in fairness, it's fairly easy when the market's cheap. Uh, the, I suppose the uh, skeptics out there would always question, is it as cheap as it could be? Are we gonna have second crashes? But in theory, I mean, I'll touch on in a moment, you know, how we sort of put investments together and just sort of go back to basics, really. But uh, it's all about time invested in the market. We would say to everybody, you know, every caveat on every investment will always say it's got to be a five-year-plus time horizon. So in theory, if you're buying into markets today and it's a certain price, I think we all hope that in due course it goes back to pre-COVID levels. And if that's the case, you're going to have, a hopefully, a, a pretty decent profit. The difference is, what we don't know is how long it's going to take to get there. So that's, a, I suppose, a sort of starting block. Um, with HL as a company, you can 
there's thousands of shares, companies you can choose from. There's lots of expertise, which is on the website. We've got help desk in Bristol. Normally, there's about 1,500 odd people in there. I think we've got 200 at the moment because everybody's working from home. Nobody's been furloughed, which is encouraging as a company. Um, once, if you are doing investments, whether it's with us or any competitors, most of the time you want to be able to view it at a touch of a button. HL certainly offers that and the flexibility to put what you want in when you want and as little as much as you want. So the flexibility is there. I think the key thing really though is what everybody wants with any kind of investment is whether it's uh, shares, bonds, gold, property, is maximum return, minimum risk, uh, as cheap as possible, which I've heard today, uh, and as easy to manage as possible. Um, and I suppose the art is how to do that. Um, just want to sort of take through a, a simple exercise, which normally when I'm speaking to any clients, uh, we would go through a risk exercise. Uh, I've been with Hargreaves now for about seven years. Prior to that, I was within banking as one of the wealth advisors. Different places have different ways of assessing risk. Um, many of the banks, building societies will present clients with a risk questionnaire. You'll either come out cautious or adventurous or somewhere in the middle. Uh, the problem being is cautious to one person can mean something completely different to the next. So the way we've sort of approached it is to try and say, well, let's do a small education piece to try and get us all talking from the same hymn sheet, really. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, there's some fabulous links on our site where there's like animated YouTube videos talking about how investments work. But I'm going to use some of that. So in its simplest form, whenever we're looking at investments, you're putting it into a number of asset classes. Um, most of, I think, the people on the, the, the you know, today's session is all about property. We come in from a slightly different angle where we talk about cash, we talk about the stock market, and we talk about bonds. Um, we do incorporate commercial property, and I'll touch on that. But if we start off with just looking at the basics, if somebody's got some money to invest, first of all, you've got to make sure you put enough aside for the rainy day. So boiler breaks, hole in the roof, plan spending, any money that you need in the short term should be readily accessible. Um, short term, we would say five years plus, um, just in case we had a global pandemic and markets crash. So any money that you can say you don't need in the short term, you can then say, okay, well, let's try and make this work a bit smarter. Uh, in the first instance, you've got cash. So cash in the bank, uh, I think what you touched on there, Tom, with a uh, how to own the world book. Uh, if you deposit your money with a bank, um, they don't just sit on your money, they lend it out to businesses. Businesses borrow because they believe if they borrow some money, they can make more money by expanding the business. Banks, happy to do that, to lend money because hopefully they've done enough due diligence on the company to check that they're confident the business can do well and pay them back. But there's a risk, you know, if the business fails to repay the loan, the bank charges them a high rate of interest than what they do with your money. So you deposit the money with the bank in the first place. If you're lucky, you get 1%, one and a half. If you're really lucky, if you lock it away for long enough, and then the bank uses your money to make it, to get them a better return because they're lending it to business. It's not exactly making your money work that smart. Um, the problem as well with cash, as we touched on, is inflation is an absolute killer. Uh, if we use, CPI, I think, you know, it's come down a bit. RPI government targets is normally 2%, but as Tom touched on, 
it's questionable whether that's a, re a true reflection of what real inflation is. So cash is never going to set the world on fire, but we need it uh, to cover unforeseen circumstances. So the next option is if the banks are making money off your money, if you've deposited it, the good news is you can get in on the action by looking at stock markets. So stock market in its simplest form is you can own part of a business. Uh, you can benefit from their success if they do well. If you're buying into a business in its simplest form, uh, you're buying a stock or share in a business, generally with the view that if the business does well, it goes up in value. Um, potentially it either plows all that profits back into the business or organically grow the business. So, you know, at one point, somebody like Netflix or Amazon or Google would have been small companies. Um, they're now colossal giants, isn't it? But the aim is really to get capital growth of the company. And if the company is generally of a larger size, they might share some of those profits in the form of a dividend. So you can have income as well. It is generally seen that the value of your shares reflects so it's how much the company is actually worth. Uh, so if the flip side is if a company is not doing so well, then your shares could fall in value. If the company goes bust, you can lose all your money. So that's the ups and downs of the stock market. Um, the hardest thing is to predict what companies to buy. Uh, the book, what Tom referred to, cracking read actually. Uh, you've got to be, I think, confident as well. As I said at the outset, there's a lot of people who have jumped on a bandwagon of markets being low. To give an idea, pre-tax year end, in head office, we normally get something like about 4,000 calls a day. It ramps up to about 6,000 calls a day. Just before tax year end, everybody trying to use their you know, ISA pension wrappers. It was in excess of 8,000 every day all around that period, while markets were rock bottom. Many would be saying, oh my God, what, why would people be investing? But to give an idea, the FTSE fell from about 7,700 7, 7, points to about four and a half. Um, at the lowest point uh, with COVID, it's currently about 6,3. You know, going from four and a half to 6,3 is a 40% uplift. Uh, if we get back to pre-COVID, there's probably still another 20% to go. And, you know, hopefully the world recovers and, you know, the wheels of the motion of economies is starting again so hopefully things will head in the right direction but time will tell so we saw that lots of people have seen it as a real buying opportunity um i think the key thing though is is trying to get diversification so we will always see the stock market as the main inflation beta the engine of growth with any sort of investment um but the old saying don't avoid rates one basket so with shares, you can buy, if you want, individual companies. You can buy smaller and coming aimlessly companies, but what, you know, smaller company, greater risk. Yes, it could do brilliant, but at the same time, you could lose all your money. HL's view is we will always go with, uh, we prefer funds. We prefer tried and tested fund managers. To give an idea, we chart and monitor something like about two and a half thousand fund managers and filter, filter those down to sort of wealth buy lists. Uh, it's not advice to buy them. If people want to use that, what, what's happening is effectively uh, the research has been done so people can see what's, what's out there and, and whether they're good based on the track record. So that's all there. We touched on shares. The alternative to shares, if somebody doesn't want to buy 
individual companies is you can buy bonds. You can effectively act as the bank where you're lending money to a business. When we talk about bonds, we generally talk referring to corporate bonds. Uh, in its simplest form, a corporate bond is just lending money to a business. In return, they pay us a fixed interest for a period of time. And at the end of the term, you get your money back. It's a loan. Um, when we talk about corporate bonds, it's we'll have fund managers who will have a massive pot of money, millions and millions of pounds, and they'll lend it to lots of businesses. Uh, some, for example, if they lent money to Vodafone, they might pay us a couple of percent. If it was a smaller plumbing company, they might pay seven or eight percent. They're good for risk moderation, risk diversification. We behave differently in different economic climates to the stock market. So again, not having all the eggs in one basket. The downside with bonds is you don't get capital growth on a, on a loan. You know, it, it's good for income, it's good for fixed interest, but it's not going to be a great hedge if you have too much exposure on that side. Um, I think I came on the call at the beginning where I talk about mortgage rates, where pretty cheap at the moment. If we talk about uh, government gilts, uh, where effectively the governments raise money through tax and uh, issuing bonds, issuing gilts. I believe, I think it's 10, 15 year guilt rates have gone negative at the moment. Um, if you were buying annuities, if people are close to retirement, uh, guilt rates aren't the best at the moment. Um, doesn't mean it's not right for people, but they're not as good as what they used to be many years ago. Many European governments, uh, in order to raise capital, are issuing guilts, which are negative. So we tend not to use them that much at the moment. Maybe some uh, index linked ones can work. So it, it's sort of getting the mix of different asset classes to behave differently in different economic climes, uh, climates to, to make your money work smarter and harder. Um, but generally, when we look back over the last 50 years, stock market has generally been one of the best asset classes most often, but not every period. So, you know, spreading the risk. So you've got cash in the bank for unforeseen circumstances. You might use an element of stock market, an element of bonds. Uh, commercial property, many of the fund managers we work with will have some exposure to commercial property, you know, office blocks, City of London, car park, warehouse, that kind of thing. Um, we don't, we can't advise on, you know, residential buy-to-lets, um, but again, that's an, a, another fantastic asset class. I come across many, many clients who've got huge portfolios. Some, some have wonderful stories, some have lots of good stories, but that's the same with everything. So I think the key thing really, it's all about understanding your appetite for risk, the time frame you're invested for, uh, your ability to absorb loss, to ride through unforeseen circumstances, what we're in, and more importantly, to be able to sleep at night. So we sort of capacity for loss, um, tolerance for loss, um, and then hopefully you're in the right sort of starting point. Where I come in, one of the advisors, there's about 80 of me scattered around the country, you know, we can set up strategies where it might be a one-off strategy for somebody. It might be a full ongoing, fully managed approach, but we do everything from investment planning, retirement planning, inheritance planning. I'm one of the later life advisors, so uh, I deal with a lot of attorneys uh, with long-term care funding and things like that. So the spectrum's there, but I would always say our starting point is whether we help somebody to help themselves, um, Many would-be stock pickers often believe they can do it. I mean, we have a huge investment team in Bristol that just spends thousands of man-hours 
charting, monitoring, challenging fund managers uh, because a fund manager can go into a business, challenge the board of directors, look at the order books, look at the P&Ls, BPA balance sheets, and a fund will have 50 to 250 companies when you and I as one of your stock pickers, we can't do that. You know, we're, we're probably already behind the news, but in current climates, it's a unforeseen territory, the landscape's changing, so each to the moment. Uh, that was probably, you know, does that just give a, a slight flavour to sort of say there's lots of lots of good shares out there, you know, you probably doesn't need a rocket scientist to look at the FTSE 100 companies over the last three, four months. They're all cheap. Doesn't mean they're going to go any lower. Um, many people have seen some fantastic rises on that. Uh, there's some fantastic funds. I mean, there's some of the US markets and the US funds have gone up 60% in the last three months. Uh, it's unprecedented. Now, whether that's sustainable, but hopefully we go in the right direction over the long term. But that was more or less what I was going to sort of start off with. Um, open to questions, really. Great stuff. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. So, um, uh, cracking into questions. If anyone's got any, bob them in the chat. I've got a few here. And we've got the first one comes from Esu, who says in the chat, are corporate bonds similar to challenger banks? I don't know what challenger banks are. No, neither do I. I've not heard of that. So, uh, <laughs> I think, what's the definition of a new challenger bank? New banks that don't have high street presences. To oh, I see. Okay. Like uh, in theory, no, because uh, it, in its, a corporate bond is lending money to businesses. Um, you're bypassing the bank effectively because if, you know, a, a challenger bank, as in they're still taking a depositor's money and lending it out to business. That's the sort of general capitalist model. But corporate bonds is you or I effectively pooling our money to then bypass the bank, lend it to a business that we think can pay us back, um, and it's a loan. So, slightly different, but we use corporate bonds, as I say, as a risk diversifier, risk moderator. It's a different asset class. It behaves differently to the stock market, generally in an adverse relationship. Okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Colin, why don't you ask your question? Save me. Is that charging? Hi, Matthew. How are you doing? Um, so you said you, you would help someone invest their money. What, what do you charge for that service? Uh, from an advisory, as it stands at the moment, we do, if I was coming to see somebody, I'd do an initial free consultation. Uh, nor, normally, I'm one of the face-to-face -face advisors up here in the Northwest, but I go wherever. Uh, free consultation. If we are then putting advice together, it's either investment advice, we charge it's a minimum fee of 500 quid or 495. Otherwise, if it's above 50k, it's one percent. So, if somebody's got 100k, it's a thousand. If it was 200, 2000, it's capped at a million. So, 10k on a million. If it's what we call complex financial planning, this is the one off advice fee. Everybody has to charge an advice fee these days. Uh, complex is things like pension transfers, setting up trusts, annuities, inheritance planning, long term care planning. We charge 2% on the first 200, 1% thereafter. So that's a one off charge. Give an idea when I was at my previous background, was one of the high street, it was Lloyd's Banking Group. 
we used to charge two and a half percent on the first 300k. Uh, HL is competitive, I think, with advice fees. There's cheaper out there. Um, ongoing charges, to give an idea, if somebody, if somebody just wants to be a DIY investor, they can open up a fund and share account on our platform for free. They can hold shares on there for free. Uh, they'll just pay a brokerage charge. I think that's 11.95. If you were to buy £1,000 worth of shares, you pay a one-off charge and that's it. If you're buying funds, it's free, but you'll pay an ongoing charge for the fund. So I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, the, the million-dollar follow-up question now. Man, like million dollars? Christ, I thought it was 10 grand capped. <laughs> but for all of your clients yeah. um, that you've, you've advised, what is their net annualized return, net of your fees? Uh, you can't give a specific answer because everyone's different. You know, if somebody's got 100% equity to 40% equity, it's going to be different. Uh, generically, the way to sort of swerve the question is to say the stock markets, realistically, over the last 50 odd years, have returned about 5.5% you know, after inflation, that's, but then look at the unprecedented times. If you put your money in, in March, and I've seen millions and millions of pounds have gone into markets since March, you could be up 40%. So it's swayed and uh, by different events. Bonds, realistically, after, after tax, so after inflation, about 3%. And then you've got cash, well, cash is there, as opposed to, you know, again, you guys can all relate it to property, but you know, Tom will be the first one. If you read that first section on how to value a property and its actual uh, its yield, um, once you start building in inflation costs, mortgage costs, tenancy uh, void period, then hopefully it's up in the right figures. So I would comfortably like to think that somebody with a balanced portfolio, you sh it would be nice to be getting sort of circa seven percent after tax, after inflation, if you could do that, but. Is that realistic every period? Uh, I think that was a thank you from Colin. It was, he's muted himself because he's considerate like that. But uh, that was good. Thank you very much. Excellent stuff. Um, I'll hold on uh, I'll hold on to my question because we've got one from Yogesh. Do you want to ask your question, Yogesh? Or are you busy yogering? <laughs> no, I'm finished. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, loud and clear. Um, what was my question? Oh yeah, ISAs. Um, so I've got I've got quite a lifetime ISAs um, with you guys. If I think good, well that's uh, <laughs> 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 you got all that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read out his question from yeah. the uh, chat. Oh, he's back. Are you back, Yogesh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So you lost me, did you? Yeah, yeah. Go again. Uh, if you if you take out um, your ISA allowance or any ISA investments you've got, and then put it back before the end of the tax year. Uh, do you keep your hours either? Uh, is it safe? Is it still uh, the answer to that is yes. If it's if the providing ISA hold wrapper, for example, uh, allows you to HL one doesn't. So if you, for argument's sake, if you put you can put twenty k in an ISA, you put that in this year, you take it out, you can't put it back in. Not with Hargreaves Lansdowne. The government brought in the flex to the rules to sort of say, you can take your money out, put it back in, but it depends on whether the seeding scheme, so whether it was HL, whether it was Lloyd Banking Group, certain providers will allow you to do that. We, we didn't. 
but purely because of the logistics of trying to manage it was just horrendous. So use cash elsewhere first. Okay. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, I think, yeah, that, I think so, so basically the answer is no for HL. Is that right? For HL, yeah. the answer is no, yeah. Yeah, the answer is no. Yeah. And uh, I did have a second question. But I didn't know you'd give advice. Um, I thought it was just do it yourself, service. So, it is worrying that when uh, we've got so many clients. <laughs> yeah, I've got a client for a long time and I didn't know. It, uh, it is. I mean, if, um, so, yeah, who do I contact? <laughs> uh, me, if you want, but um, happy to speak to. I mean, uh, it's, there's about 80 of me scattered around the country. We're all members of staff. Um, as all, most of us are chartered. Many of them, I'm one of the fellows. Most of us are fairly way on top and fairly experienced, um, you can speak to any, any one of us. I mean, it's, you can either, I'll happily speak with anybody, or you can, you can actually go on our website, click on, I think under the banner over the top says our services, to the right hand side, it actually says financial advice. Um, you can book it on there, you can email me direct, or if that's of any use, but everybody will do what we call a, a free consultation, is basically to say, what have you got? What's it for? What do you want it to do? If it's not broken, don't fix it in its simplest form. So we're trying to get an understanding, a snapshot of what you've got, how that sort of dovetailed into your planning. And planning will be a mix of career, family, lifestyle, property, taking you from now through to retirement and beyond. Um, and it's trying to understand what are the priorities now to see whether we can help and add value. And it might just be you need a steer to help, help, help you to help yourself. It could be you need an initial piece of advice. It could be you need more ongoing support. Uh, and that, as I say, could be anything from extracting money out of a business to pensions, to inheritance planning, to whatever. So we do the whole spectrum if it's relevant, but you can, HL's view is pay for what you need. So uh, does that give a bit of a steer? Is that okay? That yeah, like can you, will your email be in the chat or something? Will the email be in the chat or something? Is your email, your contact. Uh, is that available, Tom? Or? Uh, well, you can, we can make it so clear. That's up to you. I'm not, uh, I'm not about Absolutely. to go, uh, giving out your details without your say-so, but if you... Yeah, I'm more than happy. Yeah. If somebody wants my... If, if my email and mobile number's on there, I can please pass it out if it's all... Yeah, smashing. Yeah. I'll um I'll, uh, I'll bob that. I've got, uh, I've got that, so I'll, I'll pop it in the chat in a minute. Um, great stuff. Uh, speaking of... Speaking of collapse, um, and all my questions, if... It, uh, um, you read the book, so I. Yeah, I've read the book, so that, that, that all my questions are basically just coming out of the book. I've one book, never, never trust a man who's read one book, um, and I'm, I'm definitely in that camp. Although, for anyone who's interested, I also really enjoyed Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics. That's where I sort of started with economics about five years ago, and we should started sooner. It's, it's quite a longy, but it's in simple English, which appeals. Warren Buffett's got a good one, but it's about it's like it's as thick as War and Peace, and it's uh, <laughs> it's hard going, but it's a brilliant read. But uh, yeah. when did he write so that? Warm, Okay. Oh, yeah, uh, what what was he called? Snowball, did you say? Snowball. I think it's called the Snowball. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I think I might have read that. Anyway, I've certainly heard of it. And, um, and as the name suggests, you know, as he's talked on all his economics books, um, it, it's kind of the last few years, depending how long your journey is, where if you've done things right, you really get sort of eighty percent of the benefits, don't you, because of the joys of compound interest. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating yeah. slightly, but not much. Um, uh, I realise. You haven't lived through a currency crash yet, and hopefully none of, none of us ever will. But uh, we kind of did in the in the early nineties, didn't we? With the um, the coming off the 
uh, I'm going to get the words wrong. Exchange rate mechanism, yeah. rate mechanism yeah. which I always yeah. call ETFs, which are obviously completely different vehicles. Um, but uh, uh, if, if there was to be a currency crash in this country, and we'll come back to more property exciting things in a minute, um, or things more relevant to a group of property investors, I should say, but uh, what would that look like, do you think? Or is it just impossible to tell? Like what would actually happen? Presumably, I mean, historically, we're looking, you're looking at a bunch of stuff that leads to sort of inflation or hyperinflation, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, it depends on when you look at, if our, our currencies, if once, if it's strong, it makes goods uh, cheaper, isn't it? And vice versa, you know, but then equally, it depends on whether you're importing or exporting. Um, you know, look at it in the application here, is if it's costing us more money to buy goods from abroad because our currency is not strong, well, that makes it more expensive to buy materials to do, renovate properties, etc. Um, but at the same time, if we are, too strong, then you're exporting, then it, it makes our goods less competitive trying to get them into the greater world. So who knows what's going to happen with Brexit, where it's, you know, it's been swept under the carpet, you know, with obviously COVID. Uh, we're step one of a thousand steps, you know, uh, it's a bit unprecedented time, who knows what's going to happen there, but I don't know, you know, with currency, I think the government tries to, as much as they manage inflation, currency risk and everything else. So. Opinion alert, but what, what do you think, crystal balls out um, on the table, what, what do you think is coming in the next 12, 24 months, or are you far too experienced to uh, get involved in any guessing games like that? Uh, the latter. Um, <laughs> uh, the feedback we get, for, I mean, we've got quite a lot of very, very straight-talking economists, researchers, There's the guy, Mark Gamp is our head of research with HR. Uh, he's brilliant. He really says it as it is. And his view is the world, you know, all the way through COVID, we've had updates. We know that this, this crash or, or this uh, pandemic is not like the credit crisis. Um, the world is gradually, the wheels of motion are gradually coming back. There is going to be casualties. There's a lot of businesses which were potentially in poor shape before we went into uh, uh, the global pandemic. I mean, look at Intu and look at the uh, traffic centre, for example, isn't it? It's, it wasn't in good shape. Um, there'll be, look at the high streets, you know, there'll be retail industries which are massively affected by Amazon. So what we're sort of seeing is that the wheels of motion gradually are coming back. People get back in their cars, people go back to spending, people start going out. But how quickly we recover, we don't know. But I think it's more a case of it's, it depends on the caveats are if there's further spikes uh, and there's bound to be, you know, we're already seeing that, you know, happen in various places around the country. So I think it's a bit of an open book. We don't know, but the view is that the, the world will gradually ease itself back to where it was, but there'll be a few, you know, some companies are absolutely flourishing. Others will go to war as we see, you know, uh, I think, you know, it's not necessarily a natural wastage. I think it is just physically that they weren't, set up to be able to accommodate a global pandemic. You know, that goes back to investing, isn't it? Make sure you've got enough money in the bank to cover unforeseen circumstances. Uh, it allows you the capacity to ride through a downturn. Uh, and that's in any business. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on. If I, uh, I'm almost going to play devil's advocate with this next one. Uh, if, let's imagine I'm a, a young book just starting out in, in life or in property, given the, Given this property kind of group, um, and uh, uh, 
So let's say um, I've got a small pot to invest. I say I've got whatever. Uh, let's say I've got 50 grand. And I, I say, well, I can either put that 50 grand into, say, stocks and shares, bonds, a, a nice balanced portfolio there, maybe make, as you say, sort of uh, based on historical averages, roughly speaking, 5% a year after inflation. But the joy of, again, I'm, I've stolen this from the book, as you probably already noticed. Um, the, the, the main joy of, of investing in property then is that I can borrow 75%, say, uh, on that 50 grand and turn that 50 grand into a leveraged uh, 200 grand. Yes, um, 200 grand because I can borrow 150 on it. I think I've got that normal post numbers, right? I hope I have, because I'm in the wrong game. Um, uh, that, uh, and I can and buy potentially two properties, and, uh, and then if, if those properties go up even 10%, I um, uh, do very well because and, 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 it's leverage money in a way that I can't leverage. I can't borrow 75% to buy stocks and shares and bonds and commodities and all the rest of it. Surely I should do that and stick all, all my money in, in, um, in, in property. Would you? I mean, I realize I'm not suggesting you want to be a property expert, but just on the fundamentals of that argument, would you not say that's sound? Or, or is there an argument for always having some money in stock shares, bonds, etc.? All asset classes behave differently, don't they? So, you, you know, you spread the risk. It's a case of you could, the, the plus points for properties, absolutely as you've highlighted. You can effectively borrow, get the bank, borrow the money off the bank, attempt to pay the rent, mortgage, etc. So they're covering your costs and you get capital growth and you get a yield along the way. Uh, but at the same time, if your property is potentially in the wrong area with poor tenants, as, as you said, your dad's example, um, it might cost you a bit more. The view, I mean, you could you know, look at, there's a couple of funds, look at last five years, some funds have done in excess of 150%. That's way more than 5% a year. Um, so the difference is with, depends on what you're putting it into, you could say, as a high rate taxpayer could put some money into a pension so that for every pound it's only costing them 50p um, you can have over time the compounding effect is massive um, we would say just diversification you know uh, i come across most clients will have you know they'll have property obviously in their own residence they might have buy to let they might have businesses but at the same time they want other vehicles that can be tax efficient rapids, so pensions ices BCT, all the rest of it, if it's, if it's relevant. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, I had a follow-on question, actually, I've forgotten because I was busy writing down another one. Well, let's start with that other one and I'll come back to it, which was, um, ah, that's it. You mentioned, which I didn't know until you mentioned it, that one of the areas you deal in, specialise in, is sort of uh, long-term care and that, that sort of thing, and uh, yeah. as of older people. Well, maybe older people so um i think that's that's something which i'm interested in um because like most people i have older and uh, relatives who aren't getting any younger and 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 from what little i know and feel like i should definitely know more about hence the question is is long-term care so i think most people are aware of the fact that inheritance tax is sort of 40 percent over roughly a million with the various bits and bobs of packaging and houses and this that and the other but once you own assets of, and cash of over a million quid ballpark figures you're going to pay 40 percent on tax if that person were to were to pass on and people get sort of in my opinion in my experience rather focused on that and, and knowledgeable about that and, and take steps to mitigate and avoid and um uh, and be efficient towards that but they know less about um the okay. yeah. uh, the long-term care stuff which seems to be a lot more punitive is that uh, is that is that well not 
um, my understanding is that they'll that the government takes to pay for care, broadly speaking, everything, but down to the person's last twenty-three grand. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, there was the studies have been done. Uh, there was a, a report called the Dillnot report came out a few years back, which was trying to put a cap on what people pay for care costs. Um, to give an idea, the, the for a very basic care home, you're probably talking about a thousand a week. So it's pretty pricey. Um, anybody who's got assets over the 23K, they've got to pay for it themselves. Now, if you've got husband and wife, so you've got your parents, for example, and one of them's got to go into care, then providing the spouse is still in the house, they can't use the house at that point. Um, you've got to be very careful. I mean, I come up. The thing with care is you can do planning through your lifetime, but you can't suddenly do it the week before somebody's going to go into care because they'll call it deliberate deprivation. Um, you can't be seen to be hiding assets and squirreling it away into son and daughters or into the spouse's name. The options really are you either have enough income, if you've got to go into a care, a care home type facility, you either have enough income to pay for it. So pensions, you've got to have other assets, whether it's you know, your properties, ice, pensions. If you haven't got enough, you've got to start selling things. Um, there's ways and means of doing it more effectively. Um, if the pot's big enough and it can generate enough income, fabulous, you haven't got to sell stuff. But often people might have to sell a property. You know, let's, you know, they sell half a million pound property and it's costing 50 grand minimum a year for care. Well, that's soon going to get eaten up. So what they might do is, is buy what we call a long-term care bond, a bit like an annuity. So what that allows them to say is have a chunk of money that pays the care home directly. So it's, it's, there's no tax, which makes the money last a bit longer. Um, with a view that, that they will have made the long-term care annuities based on they believe a certain person is going to live for a certain time based on their age, health or sex. Um, if they go sooner, well, that bond's probably cost more than what they planned. To the individual, if they live longer, well, the individual is quits in. Uh, some of it to protect, you know, a legacy wealth for families based on uh, potentially some guarantees as well. But it, it's the world, we're all living longer, it's not healthy as long. So uh, it, it's a huge, huge market. Um, we're doing way more on it. There's quite a lot of marketing about to come out from, I think, HL on this. Uh, I'm one of the, what they call the uh, specialist in later life advice or SOLA. Uh, is, you know, it's a massively sort of growing area. Are there going to be lots of pictures of pe older people on beaches in white linen uh, coming out? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, the worry that it's a bit of a tough one at the moment. I've got a, a few clients who've got all kinds of got elderly relations and it was kind of morally, would it be right to be doing marketing about uh, long-term care when we're going for a, uh, a global pandemic um, where, you know, the vulnerable out there are our worst hit really, isn't it? And that's generally the elderly. So, but at the same time, people still need support and care. So we'll see.
It's fast, it is a fascinating area, isn't it? I love demographics. Um, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment anybody wants to um, be in long-term care and things like that, but uh, I'm not making light of that situation. But I just mean I find the whole demographic thing fascinating. Uh, my mum has always really, really liked France. And I was wondering whether there was any um, uh, mileage in me uh, putting her in at home when the time comes, many years to go yet, uh, in France, and uh, whether this would get around the issue. Uh, but I'm guessing if the government, the UK government, still being asked to foot the bill, the answer would be not really. I suppose it depends on whether she's classed as a uh, uh, resident in UK or France, isn't it? You know, if you've got to be, okay. a, I don't know, I'd imagine if you're, if you've effectively said, I'm no longer non-resident, uh, non-domicile, non-taxpayer, in theory they wouldn't put the bill, I suppose, but in order to get that, I mean, I, you, know, you must have to jump through quite a few hoops in France, so they're not going to be giving it away for free, are they? So, uh, no, fair enough. I'm probably go on strike. I'm going to have to get her a hat. Um, okay, good. Well, at that point, we're going up to jump through that many hoops. Uh, okay, useful. Um, so, uh, is it... I don't know, I'll put words in your mouth, but... It, is it your experience? Well, I'll come to my next question you, yeah. rather than lead the witness, which is um, what would be your, your considerable experience? What thing, uh, I'm thinking of trying to give practical help to the group here, what thing do you think that if, one, if people were going to sit down and look at one thing or do one thing to maybe improve the state of their finances or save themselves money in the long run, whether that's with care, with stocks and shares or any of this other financial planning-y type stuff, what maybe quick win or simple tip would you give people to, that they can do now to potentially save themselves a lot of money or make themselves a lot of money? Uh, make use of your tax wrappers. Uh, I mean, it, for, for all property people, um, subject to how you set up, you know, you can have pensions is going to get you tax relief all the way. Uh, if people, you know, I've heard some of the conversations, you know, we might set up a, a limited uh, company to be able to run the properties. Well, you can still, you can extract wealth out of the business and put it into a, prop, into a, a pension that immediately removes it outside of your estate. It also removes it potentially from creditors if there was, the business was to go bump. Um, you can use pension monies. You know, we talked about you know, uh, borrowing money. Well, you could get a commercial SIP. You could then, we, we don't have it, but we use two panel providers, Standard Life and Dental, off the top of my head, where you could use a commercial SIP to then buy commercial property and hold that within a pension. Um, you can borrow against it, so that kind of fits back with your, you know, the property model. Um, the income, the rental income within a commercial SIP is then going to be tax-free, um, so that's a good way of doing it. Capital gains tax-free as well. So it's, I would say, if you don't use your ISA wrappers, you're paying excess tax, uh, subject to your earnings. Um, if you don't use it, you lose it. There is ways and means of clawing some of it back if there's enough earnings in the year, but it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's another avenue to uh, make your money work smarter and harder and pay less tax to the government. It's pretty simple. To, uh, that, yeah, it's pretty simple to set up. It's not like setting up an ICE. It takes uh, hundreds of hours of work. It, you can do it in. You can you could do it online in in minutes. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who's not saving uh, having their money in an ICE is um, is potentially missing out there. Uh, to go back a stage before I then make things, I'm trying to give you a breather here to get, get back onto solid ground before we make things more difficult. Um, which was, uh, I think I know this is the first question I've asked, I think I know the answer to, but it's always worth refreshing the basics. But you touched on it, but could you refresh my memory on the difference between a stock and a bond? All right, a share and a bond, same thing. Yeah. Um, a share, so 
if a if you're a share is you're buying a as it says uh, suggests equity you're buying an equity stake within a business so if you buy a share you're buying a, a holding of that business um you have to some degree some voting rights uh if you you know if you bought shares in i think hotel chocolate i think you get a discount on your uh, your chocolate um the reason you buy a share of the business is you hope the business is going to do well, so it makes a profit. It, or it, I suppose grows, makes a profit, and if it sh makes a profit, it either, as you say, plows it back in the business to grow the business, or it might share it in the form of dividends, so you're getting a bit of income. So you're physical part owner of the business. A bond is a bit like how the bank works, is a bond is lending money to a business because they're looking to because the way we look at it, if, if a bank, if a business was to borrow from a bank, typically they borrow at about 7%. Might be a bit higher, might be a bit lower, depends on the credibility of the business. But a business will issue a corporate bond because they can raise capital cheaper on the open market. So if you're a huge blue chip and you've got a, a massive I don't know, project, you can, if it's a big established business, they can raise cheap capital a lot cheaper uh, by way of issuing a corporate bond. And you and I effectively are pooling our money to lend it to them. Um, so a bond is a loan. You're not getting a share of the profits in a bond, um, but with a share, you are. The difference is with shares, you either have, you have more risk with shares, but at the same time, greater risk means potentially greater return. Yeah, absolutely. And historically, the, historically, as you put, as you mentioned earlier, sort of shares, ballpark, and of course, it mass, varies massively from losing your shirt to making a fortune. But uh, as an average, it's roughly five, five, six percent, isn't it? With shares, I think they're, they're the, you know, the quota figures. But you look at, I mean, everything's different. I mean, you look at Tesla. You know, since March, I think their share price, or is it, uh, it virtually doubled? You know, yeah. uh, and again, is because I think you know uh, the world. Uh, landscape changing with you know more environmentally social governance all that's coming in electric we're probably going to go more in that direction aren't we clean energy um, but some you can have absolute huge returns I mean I've even Marston's the brewery I, I personally bought some shares in that it was a bit of a pump I had no idea that Carlsberg were doing an agreement with them so overnight it virtually went up by nearly 100% you know uh, I didn't sell quick enough so I lost a bit of it but uh, but that's the, you know, I, I am an experienced financial planner, but I'm not a stock picker. Um, right. And that's, you know, so it's all good stuff um excellent uh summary so now we've got loads of questions in the chat uh, so we're going to go yogesh then elliot's question then me uh and then yogesh again just to mix things up a bit and they're all they're all absolute gems i think uh at least two of them i think they'll be right into your wheelhouse uh question one can you help please email me if you need to but sorry go on tom <laughs> can you the question of Yogesh, can you help with writing wills? I can help with that, Yogesh. My, my name's Thomas Matthew Dillon. Uh, you just want to leave as much as you can to me and the rest of it will take care of itself. Um, Matthew. Uh, we don't do a will writing service. Um, we, if you need, I normally say is if you've got a good relationship with a current solicitor, then they will do it for you. Uh, we work with nationwide solicitors. Uh, they're Costs can totally vary. I mean, for uh, I mean, in theory, you you can do a will online, but what we generally hear from solicitors is when people do it wrong, it's really expensive to unravel it. Um, 
But in theory, you could, you know, it's a case of writing on a piece of paper, getting somebody to witness it and storing it, you know, to, but there's, we don't, so the answer is no, but I know people who do. My, um, my will involves my brother and most of my family wearing um, chest-high fishing waders and taking my body out into the middle of a pond in Japan, uh, mostly for my own uh, posthumous, posthumous, is that right? Posthumous, posthumous uh, entertainment. Yeah. Um, so you can get away okay with all kinds of comedy and wills, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not serious. Yeah. And of course, they need to be taken seriously because they can be expensive if you get them wrong. Um, uh, next, we'll go to Elliot's question. Um, which excites me and I'm not even a financial planner. So I imagine it's going to excite you a lot when he says, when he asks him, what percent split would you recommend between stocks and bonds? Uh, it's totally driven by somebody's appetite for risk. Um, the way to look at it is we, we almost do a, a simple diagram with a test. And if you said, if you took, I don't know, let's take a pot of money, hundred, hundred thousand and you put it into the stock market. And let's say this was in 2007. So just before the, the crash of 2008-9, stock market's pretty much halved. So if you had 100% exposed to stock markets, maybe in lots of funds rather than individual shares, uh, you would have seen your, you would still have the same amount of units, but they wouldn't be worth as much. So we would say to you, are you comfortable? Could you swallow that 50% potential downturn? And have you got the capacity to ride it through to get back to where you were. So the greater the risk, the greater the exposure to stock market has proven better returns over the long term. But what goes with that is bigger ups and downs along the way. So if somebody says that this, we would, all, as a business, we'd almost say, well, you want a slightly higher exposure to equities than bonds because your equities is the main inflation beater. It's the growth engine behind your, your strategy. So if you have too much in bonds, potentially over the long term, you're not beating inflation. So there's no right or wrong. Somebody might say, I'm, you know, the old adage used to be 60 40. But, you know, somebody will say, well, I don't like bonds because they don't give me any capital growth. So everyone is different. We, whenever we're putting a strategy, it's trying to tailor it to the individual's appetite. Yeah, in the in the one book. Thank you very much, Matthew. Excellent answer. In the one book that I've read, um, so you mustn't trust me. It's it suggests that uh, it used to be the case that you could do as a as a, as a uh, shorthand, you could do a hundred minus your age, which is relevant because Elliot's uh, particularly young or he looks young anyway. Um, so uh, then and then that sort of um, lead you to um, potentially invest more in shares when you're young, when you can afford to take that risk and you get more upside when you get older and that any loss is felt more keenly because losing half of your shirt when your shirt's 10 grand and losing half of your shirt when your shirt's a million is a very different kettle of fish, especially when you in two years' time you might need that shirt to pay for your retirement. Um, so you can afford to take more risk when you're younger or so the theory goes. He argues that because of the state of the market and because of, um, the, therefore, the returns you, and for the fact people live longer, you may wish to adjust that to even be 110 or 120 minus your age to give you your share the percentage but then of course that's up to you um it depends what it's for the, the starter point would be what what's the investment for because if it's got a time scale then if, if it was a case of i'm saving some money to buy something um as you get closer to the need you'd want to de-risk it so that it doesn't it's not exposed to fluctuations in reality most people you're saving into a pension which used to be you know, your main vehicle because of the tax efficiencies. Most people would save from, I don't know, from your 20s, retire at 65, and you 
historically you buy an annuity. If you didn't have a final salary pension, you'd buy an annuity. So many pension schemes, especially if you've all got work schemes, many of them will have had what they call lifestyle options in, which de-risks it over a sort of five to 10 year period as you got closer to retirement so that your pot was not growing anywhere near as much as what it could be, but it was not exposed to massive you know, swings in ups and downs. Um, because of the pension freedoms, people can effectively access their pension from 55 now. And many people don't want to buy an annuity because it's not terribly flexible. It dies generally with you. It's not necessarily the best value. It's risk-free, but it's not necessarily as good value as perhaps an alternative. So a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm going to access my pension pot on an ad hoc basis. I might take a big chunk out to buy property, for example. It might be they just want to take chunks along the way. So if you're going into what we call that drawdown approach, in reality, you've got your investment horizon to get you to retirement. It might switch the strategy to be more of a income focused. So you've got a nice big pot of money that can hopefully throw enough income out to cover your lifestyle. But you've got to have enough of a exposure to assets that beat inflation to last you through retirement. So, you know, we, there's been many, many studies we've seen um, where it's sort of, if somebody takes too little risk and they, they're planning on going down drawdown, then they run the risk of their money being totally eroded by inflation over time. So uh, it, it's made, it, I suppose, I think, getting that right and knowing what it's for um, if you haven't got the appetite for it, don't do it. Okay, uh, we're moving in. This always happens at five two. Suddenly, everyone's everyone's crawling out of the wood with four hundred questions. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to go quick fire now, uh, wow. Matthew, uh, which I think is fun on financial questions. Quick fire finance uh, in order to try and get through as many as we can. Um, I'm gonna go with mine first. I read Money Week magazine, and they're always suggesting that I buy in Japan. And given that I've been there and and lived there for a while and seen how hard they work, I'm a big fan of the Japanese market. So I own a lot of Japanese shares. And there's an issue that's specific, not specific to Japan, but even more uh, acute in Japan um, than a lot of other parts of the world, although it applies in a lot of places in China, um, that uh, essentially, back to demographics, that, for example, the um, uh, population of Japan is now about 125 million, and by the end of this century, it's predicted to be 58 million. Um, and every time I try and think what well, that means for my shares, just the demographic side, my head starts hurting. I can't work out if it doesn't matter because the productivity of each individual remains the same or even increases or whether it really matters because I've only got half the amount of people doing the work. Um, uh, could you clear this one up for me? No. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for quick fire. You can't get any quicker than that. Yeah. Uh, I, you've got to look at it. Is if you're, you're investing... The way to look at look at the world of different plates spinning. So a plate spinning in UK, Europe, Asia, Japan, US, emerging. You want all those plates to be working differently. You want them to complement each other, but not necessarily totally correlated. Because if they were, they'd all fall off at the same time when there's a pandemic. Um, all worlds are different. You know, all economies work differently. All styles and you know uh, ways of growth and demographics is different. So. I think it's, I can't answer your question, but I think it's just a diversification is key. Well, cool. Uh, worth, thanks very much for that. Worth bearing in mind that um, in the UK, we're, we're, although it's not as severe, our population's destined to, or predicted rather, to um, fall as well by 2100, which I think is a brilliant thing. It's too many of us, but um, uh, people get excited about it. I think it's absolutely marvellous. But uh, but it's, it's worth thinking about for what your investments or maybe your children or whatever grandchildren's yeah. investments are going to mean. Um, 
Uh, okay, uh, getting back to as many questions as we can. I think Yogesh has earned his second question. Namely, do you have ways of investing against the money? So if market, if the market falls, you make a profit. For example, spread betting, I imagine. Um, uh, you can. Uh, it's not. We don't advise on it. Well, as in, I, I'm not authorised to do it. But there is, there's tools on our website that you can use. Uh, there is spread betting. You can short markets, uh, you know, with a view that you think it's going to go up or down. Uh, it, there's facilities to do that, absolutely. It's very high risk, you know, because you're uh, effectively enhancing your returns, but you're also compounding the, the, the negatives. So uh, yeah, there, there's lots of blogs on Facebook things of, you know, there's many sort of day tradery type things. Some say it's brilliant, but, uh, you know, many will go on there with a lot of warning saying, just be really careful. Sure, uh, an excellent um, uh, bit of warning. Um, a uh, question from Colin, which says, what are typical annuity rates at the moment? For example, a 60-year-old man with two-thirds passing to wife at death. It's quite specific. God, I, I would probably... <laughs> uh, Need the I haven't done an annuity in a long, long time. Um, I'd probably say four, probably anything from probably 4 to 5%, something like that. At a push, it's they're appalling. And, and don't forget, the annuity rate, most of it is your capital. So when you buy an annuity, you get a quarter tax free. The rest of it is your capital is gone and they're using guilt rates and guilt rates are rock bottom. People are living longer. So it's got a, that pot's got to last much longer. If you live beyond the Office of National Statistics figure, you win free money. If you're not, you've lost out. I imagine there's more than one person in here, especially the youngsters, and I, I'm just jealous. Uh, don't take youngsters the wrong way, um, who haven't got a clue what an annuity is because you wouldn't, because why would you? Because it's not taught in schools, and uh, you don't need and one. You can't benefit, yeah. And you can't benefit, but by all means, Google it. Um, it's 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 quite interesting, and lots of people still have them. Um, and then what's my, I've got one here, Yogesh again, who's been excellent on the questions. Thank you, Yogesh. Um, obviously, planning for his future, which is great. Uh, do you have an invest investments that are treated as a capital gain for HMRC tax purposes, if any profits. I'm not exactly that, sure. Am I reading that saying you want, well, any investment, if, if you buy a share in a business, or you buy a share and it goes up, if it's within your ISA, it's tax-free. If it's in your pension, it's tax-free. If you decide, any income it generates, any if you sell it, it's tax-free. If you are holding an investment outside of those wrappers, so as we call, we call a fund and share account. It is what it says on the tin, it holds funds or shares. If you, you've got your normal capital gains tax allowance each year. So if you're, I don't know, at 100K and it goes up by 15K and you sell it all, then you will incur a small capital gains because it's over the budget capital gains allowance. Um, if you've got losses elsewhere, you can offset that. So I think in answer to the question, yes, uh, there's, there's ways of, avoiding uh, capital gains tax by using your tax bracket. Okay, um, thank you very much. That about uh, wraps it up for time. I hope, uh, first of all, thank you very much to, uh, to Matthew. I've thoroughly enjoyed this morning. I hope you have as well. I think the point of it for me was to, um, well, to answer some specific questions, but also to get people thinking more broadly if they aren't already about their financial futures and the, the fact that I've been working out recently that um, I probably should have spent uh, more time on this earlier. And so trying to help people to who, who aren't already spending time on it, I'm more and more convinced that spending more time on this um, uh, is more likely to make you wealthy or protect your wealth in the long term than more or less anything else you do. Um, uh, so, yeah, special thanks to uh, Matthew. I'll, I'll if I posted his contact details, Matthew's contact details in the chat, and I will put it uh, along with the podcast for anyone listening there too. Um, 
Uh, tune in next week. We haven't got a speaker uh, lined up yet. Maybe your guest. We're going to have a chat with your guest about that in the week. Um, but otherwise, we'll have a, a mastermind group. Because I haven't had one of those. Um, uh, I haven't had one of those for a while. I'm going to jump on Esu's question very briefly. Who asked? Well, to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's lots out there. Big ones would be St. James Place, but they are more like a franchise setup. They're of a similar size with assets under management, but generally the advisors are set up as uh, their own sort of franchise um, businesses. There's lots of platforms out there like, you know, Fidelity. Some are cheaper, certainly by far. If somebody's buying shares, I think there's something like 212 is very cheap. Um, generally, people find that it's, HL's user-friendly, easy to navigate, but the platform charge is more expensive than others. But the uh, ease of use uh, and monitoring is second to none. So there is, there's lots out there, as with everything. Yeah, sure. So um, other ones I've used are AJ Bell, uh, Best Investor. Yeah, yeah, that's one I was thinking of, yeah. And uh, the I would back up what Matthew says, just to be clear, I'm not on commission, me and Matthew aren't in cahoots and I'm not making any money out of this. When I say that, um, I found Hagrid lands down to be the most expensive in terms of doing certain things, but only by a couple of quid. And I'm uh, very happy to pay that couple of quid. It's my favourite of the platforms for all the reasons Matthew's outlined. They answer the phone. They do. The one thing HL is quite good, certainly people buying funds, um, we are economies of scale has allowed us to push the price down, ongoing charges of fund management costs and pass that on to the client. So we're often able to, you know, allow clients to buy into funds cheaper than what they would elsewhere. But you have got the platform charge. Thank you very much. <laughs>